And good evening, this is Doug Taylor. Welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. And tonight we are starting with Proverbs chapter 11, verse 16. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 16. And the verse reads, A woman of grace upholds honor, and men of power uphold riches. A woman of grace upholds honor, and men of power uphold riches. So, what are the questions? What kinds of questions does that verse bring up for us? A woman of grace upholds honor, and men of power uphold riches. Any thoughts? Diane, very good, thank you. Why does a woman have grace? <laughs> That's a good question. Of course, it's not necessarily saying that a woman does have grace, it's just talking about a woman of grace. So, it's not necessarily ensuring that all women have that, but it's referring to a person who has two characteristics, they're a woman and they have grace. Okay, but you, you I mean, you've raised a good subject, I mean, what is, in fact, a woman of grace? Um, I'm not sure we, we know yet what that is, and we'll have to think, uh, think through that a little bit. Okay, what other questions can we ask? Yes, Naomi, is, is grace a character of a woman? Okay, good question. And Pamela, looks like you're about to write something. Uh, yours has, your translation has, but the insolent uphold riches. There are different translations uh, of some of these verses, and um, I suspect that when we get done, um, it'll probably cover that one. Uh, yeah, that's the art scroll. I, I tend to work between three different ones, uh, well, actually four, the art scroll, the malbum, um, I think it's Judea Publishing Company, and then uh, if Rabbi Moskowitz has covered that verse on a recording, uh, I will usually go with uh, his particular translation. But let's let's um, let's roll along and see if, uh, perchance, what we come up with will also cover uh, the art scrolls' interpretation of that. So I wrote down some questions as I got started, uh, which one of which has already been identified. You know, what is a woman of grace? I also wondered what it means to uphold honor. And then, if, I, if we take the translation and the second half is men of power, so that raises the question of, well, what does that mean? What's, what's a man of power? And in the same respect, if we ask, well, what's it mean to uphold honor? What does it mean to uphold riches? And then when I look at all this, it's like, well, what is the verse really trying to teach us? I mean, there's you know, a bunch of stuff here, we'll have to kind of sort through and see if we can figure out what it really means, but ultimately it's, well, what is King Solomon trying to tell us that we need to know? Um, and Pamela, you've asked, is it a question of values? Uh, could be. Let's, I think that's a very good, 
a good start. Let's roll through here and see if we can pin this down a little bit. I looked up on my, uh, my dictionary and it indicated that grace, as we would apply it in this context, is an attractively polite manner of behaving or courteous goodwill. So let's start with that definition. An attractively polite manner of behaving or courteous goodwill. So if that's what grace is, then we have to ask, well, what's honor? And that same dictionary indicated that honor is high respect or esteem. So if I put those two together, then we're talking about a woman with an attractively polite manner of behaving, a woman of courteous goodwill, but that woman will uphold, that is, she will maintain or cause to be prolonged, high respect or esteem. Okay, so that's just trying to kind of get some idea of the facts on the table of what are we really dealing with here. So a, a woman with an attractively polite manner of behaving will uphold, that is, will, she will maintain high respect or esteem. So if we take that as the first half, then we could ask in the second half, all right, what's a man of power? Well, it would seem to be that it has to be someone who is strong, either physically or through the power that he possesses over others. So, then the second half would seem to be saying that a strong man, or one who has power over others, will maintain riches, or will cause riches to be prolonged. Okay? Everybody got the kind of the facts that we're working with? So then the question is, what's all that telling us? Anyone have an idea? What in the world all that could be saying? A woman with an attractively polite manner of behaving will maintain high respect, and a strong man, or one who has power over others, will maintain riches. Any ideas? Okay, so Naomi, the, if, I, if I translate the verse in terms of our definitions, we're saying that the, the verse, the, the actual words of the verse are saying this. A woman with an attractively polite manner of behaving will maintain high respect. And a, a person who has power over others will maintain riches. And so my question is, if that's what the verse is actually saying, what is it telling us? What, what's King Solomon's message and all that? Okay, Pamela, very interesting point. Only that the woman values honor and the man values wealth. Okay, good. And Naomi, you're suggesting it could be to, that we should be polite? Okay, good. And let me hold on, because Diane looks like you're writing something. 
And you're suggesting a woman's deeds are uh, those of honor. Uh, I think that's what you're uh, what you're suggesting there. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay. So, on this verse, the Rebbeinu Yonah also offers us a possible answer. He suggests like this. He says that the men of power, that's in the second half, refers to those who cast their fear on others. And they uphold or they maintain wealth because their only concern is to increase their wealth and their reason for doing that is so they can wield even greater power over other people by intimidating them. So the men of power have the power so that they can basically uh, have power over other people, intimidate others. And the Rabbeinu Yonah says that they will even resort, uh, resort to theft and violence in order to increase their wealth. And they think that this is the way to gain honor. Okay? Now, what they don't realize is that the only way to truly get honor is through humility and good deeds. Uh, it's only through truly worthy actions that one becomes loved and admired by others. But there's a very interesting uh, paradox here. The person who seeks honor that is, high respect or esteem, usually doesn't get it. Why? Because people see that the person is in fact seeking that. And people will generally give high respect or esteem only to someone who truly deserves it. Yet the person who truly deserves it doesn't get it. Um, doesn't get it because they're directly seeking it. In other words, it seems like an aspect of honor is that the one who's actively seeking it doesn't get it because he's actively seeking it, while the one who doesn't actively seek it can obtain it if his deeds are worthy of it. I want to make sure you, you follow that point. In other words, honor is kind of a, in a way, a little bit of an elusive thing. If you're seeking it directly, you're not going to probably not going to get it. If you're not seeking it, but you're worthy of it, you'll get it. Okay. And so the man of power will never get true honor, no matter how much power and money he obtains, because he's going at it the wrong way. Now, by contrast, the woman of grace, the woman whose deeds are truly those that cause honor to be given, will uphold honor because of those good deeds. And she'll do that because she's operating on the basis of what is truly correct and good, while the man of power, the men of power, will fail because they're going about it completely wrong and no amount of money or power will cause the people to uh, honor them. So I want to suggest that the man of power is trying to fill a hole in himself, that, that desire for honor, and he's trying to do it through means that will never get him what he wants. They'll never get him to the place of honor. 
By contrast, the woman of grace is living the life that causes people to honor her by virtue of her good deeds. She's not trying to go after the honor directly. She's trying to live a life of, of uh, good deeds and uh, what we called courteous goodwill and attractively polite manner of behaving. And a byproduct of that is that people will give her honor. Okay? So it seems that the verse is teaching us the true path to honor. But it doesn't come by directly seeking it. Real honor can't be obtained artificially. Rather, real honor comes by conducting oneself in the proper way, not for the purpose of getting honor directly, since people can smell insincerity a mile away, but because one is motivated to conduct oneself properly, because she clearly sees the truth behind that, and so she operates from a core of sincerity. Okay? Does that make sense? And are there any questions? Uh, okay, good. Okay, Diane, I hope you're feeling better soon. So that leaves us with only one question that we haven't dealt with yet with regard to this verse. Can anybody guess what it is? If the verse is all about teaching us the true path to honor and it doesn't come by directly seeking it. Ah, Pamela, thank you so much. That's the question. Why does the first half of the verse refer to a woman and the second half refer to a man? Because you would think that it would simply say, you know, a person of grace, or oftentimes I think the term man is used um, in various contexts just to mean anybody, a man or woman. You know, a man of grace upholds honor, a man of power upholds riches. So why does one refer to a woman and one refer, the second half refer to a man? And Diane, good suggestion. Basic virtues that relate to them. And I think that's where we're going to end up. Um, perhaps, as you've suggested, generally speaking, it is men who seek power so that they can wield it over others. That's not a trait we normally think of with regard to women. And, and I have to emphasize, we're talking in broad generalities here. There are obviously women who will seek wealth and power and use it to dominate others, and there are obviously men of grace. But in general, we would probably ascribe that trait of seeking power to, in order to wield it over other people to men, not to women. And by contrast, when we talk about grace, that's a term we would usually likely ascribe as a character trait associated with women, not men. But if that's true, then what is King Solomon trying to teach us with that? I mean, so what if we associate one set of characteristics more with one sex than another? I mean. King Solomon uh, 
must have been trying to get something across to us. What, what can we learn from that? So let me pause here and uh, Naomi, yeah, they have a reciprocal equation. I see your point. And we're actually, Diane, you said we're actually talking about our stages of the soul. Could be. Uh, I mean, certainly lording it over, having power to lord it over other people, you know, is uh, certainly not as much probably as of a development of the soul as operating with the type of grace uh, and courteous goodwill that's going to engender, you know, honor and respect from other people. So, I'll suggest a possibility here. If the verse simply said that a man of grace upholds honor and a man of strength upholds wealth, I might think that we're talking about a single characteristic here. But I'm going to suggest that the person of grace has a completely different outlook than the person of power. The person of grace, we're, we're not just talking about a single characteristic. The person of grace is operating on the basis of understanding why an action is appropriate based on the merits of the action, not because it's a technique for getting respect from others. Let me repeat that. The person of grace is operating on the basis of understanding why an action is appropriate based on the merits of the action, not because it's a technique for getting respect from others. In other words, the, the person of grace isn't even seeking respect from others. The, the woman of grace is searching for correct actions. By contrast, the man of power is seeking results. Okay? He's not looking for the correct action. He's looking for results. He is seeking honor. That's the true goal of men of power. That's what they want. So yet, ironically, they're seeking something that you can't seek directly. Because uh, as we discussed, I mean, true honor is kind of a funny thing. Your only chance to get it, to really get it, is by not seeking it as a goal in the first place. So, I'm suggesting that King Solomon has used the juxtaposition of gender here to denote a completely different outlook between the person in the first half of the verse and the person in the second half. By using women in the first half and men in the second half, he manages to achieve that distinction so that we see it's a very different outlook, not just a single characteristic. Okay? Does that make sense? And are there any questions on that verse? And yes, Diane, I see what you mentioned of deeds of charity. Yeah, that would be an, uh, certainly an, an act of grace. Uh, okay, no questions? All right. And David, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Uh, we are just starting Proverbs chapter 11, verse 17. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 17. And the verse reads... A man of kindness does himself good, but a cruel person troubles his own flesh. A man of kindness does himself good, but a cruel person troubles his own flesh. 
So, David, our approach on this is to, before we try to understand or explain what the verse means, we want to try to ask all the questions around the verse that would help us to understand it. So when we read that, what questions might we ask? Things that aren't clear, things that we might need to define, uh, anything along that line. A man of kindness does himself good, but a cruel person troubles his own flesh. What are the questions surrounding that verse? Okay, good, Diane. How do you bring cruelty to yourself? When it says a cruel person troubles his own flesh, that's kind of an odd thing to say. What is King Solomon telling us there? Good. Any others? Does what we think attract certain things? Could be, Pamela, and that's a great question. I want to uh, address that, and I don't want to lose it. Let's, if I can hold that question uh, till the end, let's come back, and if I, if I don't, then um, uh, mention to me that I've missed it, because I do want to, uh, to address that. Uh, yeah, Naomi, how, the, how is the flesh affected? Right, it's kind of an odd term. Um, and one could lose wealth and goodness, but how do you bring harm to the flesh? Very good. Okay, that's a good question. And one that we will, I think, be able to find an answer to. So, a couple of questions that I added to that would be, how does a man of kindness do himself good? Um, and... What is a man of kindness? Let's, let's start with that. What, what does a man of kindness do? And that's fine, Diane. Thanks so much. What does a man of kindness do? I'd suggest that a man of kindness would be one who acts with kindness toward others. And, I mean, I realize that seems rather obvious, but it's important that we clarify... Uh, as we go along, what we're talking about. That doesn't mean, importantly, that does not mean that he's just nice to everybody. There are, in fact, some people who it would be improper to be nice to. Um, sometimes being kind to someone could look very different than being nice. And in certain situations, uh, you know, there's the, the phrase tough love, and that may be the kindness thing, that a person can do. For example, suppose you had an agreement with your child that he could go outside and play ball with his friends once he gets his homework done. Now suppose that he dawdled along and didn't attend to his homework and now he looks out the window and he sees his friends outside playing ball and he pleads with you to go out and play. He's got all kinds of reasons uh, it's finally stopped raining and this is the first chance to play ball with my friends in a long time. Or it's supposed to rain tomorrow so this is the last opportunity I'm going to have. Or my friend Sammy's out there and Sammy's about to take off on a two-week trip so this is the last time I'm going to get to play with Sammy in a long, long time and please, please, please can I go play? And he wails and he cries and he stomps. Okay, so you're the parent. What is kindness in this situation? Is it giving in, which could seem to some like kindness, or 
Is it holding him accountable for his actions? In this case, I would suggest it's clearly the latter because he needs to learn responsibility and he needs to learn consequences. And holding him to the consequences that he had agreed to, that he could not go out and play till he got his homework done, is an important part of his character development. So the man of kindness analyzes each situation and determines what is in the best interest of others and the best interest of the system in which he's operating. And he acts accordingly. Okay? So it's not just being nice. It's about truly figuring out what is kindness in this situation and how do I apply that. Okay? So I'll suggest that's a man of kindness. Now, if that's true, well, that's all fine and good, except how does he do himself good in that process? And I want to suggest two reasons. The first reason I want to suggest is that he'll sleep at night. That is, he's at peace about his actions towards others because he knows he's acting with kindness toward others and not with selfishness toward himself. He carries no guilt about his actions. He knows that he's acting in the best interest of the other people and in the best interest of the system in which he's involved. So rather than being self-centered, he sees himself as part of the system. It might be the system of his family, might be the system of his, his community, might be the system of his whole country, and he takes action accordingly. So he eliminates a certain level of conflict in his own life which is to his own benefit. I mean, we've talked about conflict before and how it creates stress and all the effects of stress uh, and all that type of thing. So he's eliminated that level of stress from himself. Second, he gains the trust and respect of others. I mean, after a while, people recognize, hey, this guy operates on the basis of kindness toward other people. And people will trust and respect that which means that he will be treated as a man of respect. And so if he is ever in need of help or in a situation where he needs the benefits of a reputation of a man of trust, he will already have built up that trust with the people around him. So he is basically laying a foundation so that not only will people respond to him positively, but if he ever gets in difficulty, he will be in a much better position to be able to get help from others uh, if he had to need it, or if he needed to be referred to other people. Uh, he'll have a lot of people who would be willing to stand up and say, hey, this is a guy of, of uh, you know, trust and respect and a person who does good things for the community and so on and so forth. Okay? So he does himself good through the acts of kindness that he does for others. The, the good that he gets out of it is a byproduct. It's not that it's a, a direct act of goodness to himself. It's the byproduct of doing goodness for other people, doing kindness for other people, that eliminates stress in, is in his life and brings upon him a good reputation and all the positive things that come with that. Okay? Any questions on the first half?
Okay, let's talk about the second half. What does a cruel person do? When we talk about that person is cruel, what defines for us what a cruel person does? Any thoughts on that? How would we define a cruel person? Okay, Pamela, good. Gives pain. David, thank you. Uncaring, self-centered, okay. And Naomi, you mentioned disagreeing to the right things. Okay, so we need to be a little bit careful because if the, there, there has to be a reason that King Solomon picked the word that he did. So when he's talking about a cruel person, I'd suggest it's not just someone who acts selfishly, although that is one component. But if that's all that he did, then what we'd do is we'd call him a selfish person. But I'll suggest that a cruel person acts to cause harm to other people intentionally. And Pamela, you've mentioned physical or emotional, both, I absolutely agree. That he, he causes pain, if, if a person caused pain to someone accidentally, then I might call them, you know, foolish or stupid or, or uh, uncaring, but I wouldn't probably go so far as to call them cruel. Uh, I think cruelty involves the, the characteristic of intentional, intentionality, I'm not sure if that's a word, but of doing, of causing harm to someone intentionally. The cruel person will go out of his way to do something that will be painful to another person or another creature. And somehow, the cruel person gains some type of distorted satisfaction by causing pain to another person or creature. I mean, for example, torturing animals is a form of cruelty. Even sometimes laughing at someone else's misfortune could be considered uh, an act of cruelty. So, why do you think that a person would do that? You think about it, why would a person want to cause someone else pain intentionally? Any thoughts about that? I mean, we've seen that kind of thing happen in news reports of people who do such things, but let's just ask, you know, any ideas about that? Okay, David, I hear you. It's a good point. Um, here's my suggestion. Uh, I'll suggest that a cruel person is searching for power. That they want to have power over others. And cruelty is a way of confirming to themselves that, yes, I have power over others. I can cause them harm. Now, why a person will develop this way is an interesting question that we could probably discuss at great length. I mean, it could be something in their upbringing. 
it, you know, perhaps their parent, a father or mother was cruel to, and mean to them, and so this is a way that they're acting out their suppressed anger around that. There are probably a number of possibilities. But as I sat and thought about this, the best that I could come up with was that a cruel person must be searching for the ability to have power over others in order to cause them to do um, that cruel act. Now, regardless um, the, of the reason, the cruel person seems to want to have power over others and asserts that need by undertaking those cruel acts upon other people and other creatures. So let's look at the practical consequences for a person who is cruel. And I'll suggest there are two types of consequences. There are internal consequences and external consequences. So, and again, we're talking about the cruel person. So let's look first internal. If a person is cruel to others and thinks that gives him power over others, then what he will do over time by doing those kinds of cruel acts is he will disassociate from other people. He will numb up, if you will, or freeze up his association with others. Because in order to be cruel to them, he has to dissociate from them. He has to break his associative connection with those people. Because if he actually identified with them, if, if he saw that he was causing pain to another human being who was just like him, he wouldn't be able to do it. But he does, and so in order to, to be able to do that, he dissociates from them. He makes them smaller in his mind, or less, or uh, of, of some different classification. You know, he'll maybe say, well, they're of that race, or they're of that creed, or they're of that sex, or they're of this or that. He'll, he'll make a classification in his mind and stick them in a box in his mind that they are somehow different than me, they are less than me, they are uh, something other than me. We saw that happen during the Second World War when the Nazis you know, brought on such uh, horrific things upon the Jewish people. They had to go through a process of uh, determining them to be like a lower form of life. And we've seen that with other uh, people, you know, in other <clears throat> uh, histories where if, if there's going to be a lot of torture or whatever, uh, people have to put them in some lower level classification. And so by dissociating from other people, he moves farther and farther away from reality and further into what we could call megalomania. Megalomania becoming, mean, meaning extremely self-centered. The problem is, no matter how much he does this, it is not going to satisfy his internal need. His internal need for power and to be cruel is very likely based on events that happened earlier in his life, you know, probably when someone was cruel to him. So for him, there's a conflict here. He's got a, like a hole, a psychological wound that needs to be healed. But that conflict that wound is never going to be healed or satisfied by being cruel to another person. I mean, that's just not how it can be fixed. 
So the cruel person is trying to resolve a conflict within himself by acting it out externally. And that type of action will never solve the problem. So the conflict, the internal pain, remember we're talking now about the internal aspect of this person, becomes even more acute, becomes even stronger. So now the person wants to be crueler in stronger ways, maybe to more people or stronger ways of acting out the cruelty. And as each of those new actions also doesn't solve the problem, the discomfort becomes even more acute. So the cruel person basically increases his own internal pain by continuing his cruelty. He's in this vicious cycle that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And as that conflict increases, so does you know, the stress on him internally, which, have we, as, which as we've discussed, eventually has an impact on your body uh, you know, through um, the stress that you carry around. So when the verse talks about troubling his own flesh, that conflict that he keeps trying to work out that's just getting worse and worse and worse is eventually uh, most likely going to have a physical impact on him. Not necessarily because he's going to start you know, beating up on himself, but because just that internal struggle is in fact a form of uh, beating up on yourself and uh, will manifest itself uh, eventually in physical symptoms. Okay, let me pause there because we're about to talk about externally. And David, you've asked an interesting question. Do cruel people believe they are really good? Uh, don't know the answer to that, but I think that for some of those people, uh, yes, they probably do think that. Uh, I think probably uh, people who were Nazis during the Second World War didn't wake up in the morning thinking, hmm, I am a very wicked and cruel person. I think they thought themselves they were actually doing a good thing. They thought they were ridding the world of something that you know, needed to be done. They had so distorted their ability to see clearly that their distorted view of the world was, yeah, they thought they were, they were doing good. Uh, it's my understanding that Al Capone thought he was a benefactor to society. So I think, generally speaking, they probably do. Uh, I mean, I, you know, there may be some that, you know, just accept that, yep, I'm doing wicked and cruel things, but I would suspect that most of them come up with a rationale in their mind for what they're doing. Um, you know, I'm getting back at this, or these people were mean to me, uh, or, um, you know, whatever, you know, it might be. Um, so, yes, I would, I would say my, my guess is the answer is yes, but I haven't interviewed enough people to have any empirical data about that. Okay, any other questions on that point? So, that's what the cruel person does to himself internally. But what about externally? What happens to the cruel person externally? I'll suggest to you that civilizations are generally repulsed by cruelty. That doesn't mean that civilizations haven't acted in a cruel way, but generally speaking, if you take your average group of people, I think they will be somewhat repulsed by cruelty. So when the person, the cruel person, is found out, 
First of all, those to whom he has been cruel will likely have very strong motivation for revenge. And those to whom he hasn't been cruel will still be so repulsed by the cruelty that they will have little, if any, sympathy for him. So when something happens to the cruel person, society isn't necessarily going to step in and help him. And moreover, many societies take active steps to punish people who are cruel. And even if laws aren't in place for that, the vengeance of the cruel person's victims will likely come back to him, and even then, the society may not protect the cruel person. Rather, they may stand by and say, well, he got what he deserved. So, he is going to eventually face consequences for his cruel actions, and it's quite likely that those consequences could come externally, either by vengeance from the people he's been cruel to, or uh, the society uh, in which he's involved. So the cruel person troubles his own flesh through the conflict, the pain, and the stress that he creates internally, and he also troubles his flesh through the natural physical consequences that may come through other people uh, as a result of the cruel actions that he takes. So we could then say that the subject of the verse is consequences of conduct. The righteous person's conduct brings him good, while the cruel person's conduct causes him trouble to his own flesh. Okay? Any questions on this verse? And Pamela, you mentioned he who lives by the sword. Yeah, that can definitely be true. Now I want to go back to your earlier comment, Pamela. Uh, does what we think attract certain things? That's a very interesting question. Uh, and I'll give you my take on that. I do not think there is any magic out there uh, whereof if I think about death, automatically somebody around me will die. Or if I think about money, automatically money will come to me. Uh, there are some philosophies and you know, books and so forth out there that seem to think there's this somehow magical situation uh, where if I just focus on the right things, all the things that I want will come to me. Um, I don't agree with that, and I don't think there's any foundation for it uh, in, in Torah, because you can't, you can't realistically show uh, a clear cause and effect. However, there is a, a mechanism called the reticular activating system that operates in our minds where if we start thinking about something, then we also start noticing it around us. And this became very clear to me many years ago when I got it in my head that I wanted to own a, uh, a certain kind of a sports car. And I got the brochure, and I put it, you know, I think up on my dresser, and I looked at the cool picture on the brochure of this sports car. And what do you know, then when I drove around, I suddenly started seeing these sports cars all around. Now, is that because I was magically attracting them to me? No, I think the sports cars were there all the time. It's just that we blank out so much of what is around us because 
there's so many external stimuli that we get exposed to uh, that we can't process everything and so we miss a lot of what is going on around us and once I became sort of attuned to wow I'm really interested in this sports car then I started noticing them on the highway uh, and I found that to be true with a number of cars I've purchased once I got interested in a particular car I started noticing them on the road that's because my mind was attuned to uh, see the ones that were around me. They'd always been there before, I just never paid any attention to them. So does what we think attract certain things, not in a magical way, but I think that what we think about starts to affect what we notice. And so if, for example, I'm always thinking of how everything's going wrong in my life. You know, I had to wait in line at the airport, and then my car was dirty, and uh, there was a big long line of traffic, and the drivers in front of me wouldn't go fast enough, and the food they served me at the restaurant wasn't as hot as I wanted. If I start thinking that everything is going bad for me, then I have automatically tuned my mind in to look for everything that could possibly be interpreted as bad. And I'll find it because there's plenty of stuff out there that I can interpret as bad. On the other hand, if I say, you know, life is incredibly wonderful. I mean, I woke up this morning and I'm in a warm house and I have food to eat and I have clothes on my back and the sun is shining and look at the green trees outside. And I attune myself to start looking for uh, those kinds of things. Then I'll find them because they're there as well. So if I, for example, started thinking about cruel things, mean things, awful things, focusing my mind on all that stuff is probably not the most empowering thing I can do. Uh, by the same token, if I focus my mind on positive and encouraging thoughts, um, things of Torah, clear and true ideas, uh, that will probably help me in a very positive way. Uh, I read one book where they had done a study where they just uh, it had a strength meter. Uh, I think it was a, a hand, squeeze the hand kind of strength meter. And they got a couple of big guys in and, and had them think um, thoughts of, I'm weak, I'm really frail, I'm really weak. And they just had them sort of mentally repeat those thoughts. And then they had them squeeze this thing and measured how far they could squeeze it. It was a meter. And so then they just took a little break and then they had them think very positive, strong thoughts. You know, I'm strong, I'm powerful, I really have a lot of energy. And they focused on those thoughts for a little bit and then they had them try it again and they all were able to perform better in that test uh, the second time around. So what you think about has a big impact, um, but in terms of a magical attraction uh, or a separate force out there, I don't think that one exists. Okay? Uh, Pamela, am I answering your question here? I'll assume yes. Okay. All right. Um, where are we here and how much time do we have? Looks like we've got time for about one more verse. 
Okay. We are at Proverbs then, chapter 11, verse 18. And it says, A wicked man performs a deceitful act, but one who sows righteousness has a true reward. A wicked man performs a deceitful act, but one who sows righteousness has a true reward. So what are the questions around that? A wicked man performs a deceitful act, but one who sows righteousness has a true reward. Any thoughts? So here are some possible questions. First of all, what kind of a deceitful act are we talking about here? A wicked man performs a deceitful act. Is that like will perform, does perform? I mean, the way that King Solomon has that is kind of an interesting way of, of putting that. And why does a wicked man perform a deceitful act? Could ask that. And then it says, one who sows righteousness has a true reward. Well, why? Why does a person who sows righteousness get a true reward? And what is a true reward? And why does King Solomon use the word true in there? Because why doesn't he just say righteous gets a reward? Why, why does he say a true reward? Okay. And Naomi, let me pause because it looks like you're writing something. Whoops, I'm sorry. I had my, uh, my uh, screen slid down, so I missed uh, that you were writing the questions I was requesting. Uh, absolutely. David, good. Yep, what are the rewards? Um, and yes, Pamela, false reward, true reward. Um, okay. And can we know if we're righteous if we receive the reward? Ah, good question, David. And I think we'll get a good answer on that by the time we're done when we uh, see kind of what the nature of that true reward is. Okay. All right. And yes, Naomi, good work is sown. Okay. Excellent. So let's talk about deceit for a minute. I would. It says a wicked man performs a deceitful act. I'll suggest that deceit has the quality of fooling someone to their detriment. I mean, a surprise birthday party is not considered deceit. Uh, embezzling money, that's considered deceit because I'm fooling someone to their detriment. So let's, let's see if we can go somewhere with that. Now, wicked people do all kinds of evil things. So we might ask, well, why would the verse then focus on deceit? When a wicked person is known to be wicked, you can look at his evil acts and see that they're evil. But a person could think that, despite the fact that wicked people clearly do wicked things, it might still be viable to believe something that they tell you or to trust them. I mean, it can be pretty easy to trust someone, particularly if they're very shrewd about the way they talk about it. So I wanted to initially suggest that the verse is telling us that when you see a wicked person, 
you should know that they will perform a deceitful act. That is, they will try to fool you to your detriment. It's not a question of whether they will. They will. And so you should take precautions in steering clear of dealing with them. Okay? That was my first run-through on this. Okay? And does that make sense? They, they yeah, Pamela, they act undercover. Uh, I mean, you, you just, you should know that if you're dealing with a wicked person, you're going to get messed with. You're going to get fooled. That was my first take on this. So now the second half says that he who sows righteousness has a true, true reward. And it may prove to be important, and we'll get there, that the verse says, has a true reward. It does not say, will receive a true reward. It says, one who sows righteousness has a true reward. So, a reward is generally something you get for doing something uh, where there's not necessarily an expectation of compensation. In other words, if it's strictly compensation, like the pay for my job, then that's compensation. That's not a reward. I mean, if you use the word loosely, it is, but uh, basically I earned it by fulfilling my end of the deal. I'm going to suggest that a reward implies something unexpected or some type of payback when no clear agreement was made at the beginning. So let's take a person who sows righteousness. What kind of reward might he expect? I mean, when we think about rewards, what is the first thing that most people think of uh, in terms of, of what that reward would look like? David, good, thank you. Money. <laughs> okay, any others? Metal from the Queen. Okay, good, Pamela, thank you. So, could be money, could be a medal, could be a new car, could be a house. It's something in the physical world. Okay, the new job I wanted, so forth. The trip to Mazatlan, uh, it's, these are all physical things. Rewards are generally thought of as physical. But could, can that be what Proverbs is referring to here? I mean, you do righteous things and Hashem will give you treats? I mean, is that the ultimate good? While most rewards are physical, I'll submit to you that King Solomon is referring to something else. And, that's, and the reason is that he says... That he who sows righteousness has a true reward. He doesn't say receives a true reward. What's a true reward? I'm going to say it's way beyond the physical. It's the knowledge that you're operating in accordance with reality. That you're operating in accordance with the system that God created. And knowing that can bring you peace. The man who knows he's operating in accordance with reality who's doing what God intended man to do. That provides a level of peace, a level of life that a wicked person will never experience. That is a true reward. And the verse says, 
that he has it because it's a byproduct of living a righteous life. He doesn't receive it like you receive a car or a check or the physical object, the boat, the money. You have it as a result of the righteous life that you live. Okay? And Naomi, yep, anointing with oil, if that were a reward, that would be another physical example. And Pamela, you've mentioned Olam Haba. Yes, the world to come, but in Mishle we're talking more about the practical life here and now, as opposed to the world to come. Uh, Mishle is designed to be a very practical book, and I know some of the commentators interpret uh, some of the verses as having to do with the world to come, but I'm, I'm taking the approach that my... Uh, teacher Rabbi Moskowitz has shared with me over the years that uh, looking at, at Mishle as a very practical uh, book dealing with life in, th in this world. So are there any questions on that interpretation? And does anyone see a problem with it? Because there is one. And here's what the problem is. The question is, what does the first half of the verse have to do with the second half? Because based on the interpretation that I came up with, the first half seems to talk about what the wicked does. A wicked man performs a deceitful act. Okay? And the second half talks about what the righteous has as a result of what he does. And those two don't match. You would think it would say, a wicked man performs a deceitful act, but a righteous man performs a righteous act. But it doesn't say that. Or, if it's talking about rewards, you would think a wicked man uh, performs uh, a deceitful act and receives punishment, but one who does righteous acts gets a reward. But it doesn't say that either. It says a wicked man performs a deceitful act, but one who sows righteousness has a true reward. So, I got all the way done with this first part of the analysis when I was preparing for this, and I said, hmm, that doesn't work. Okay, the ideas make sense independently, but they don't work in terms of the verse itself, because in, as we've discussed before, in most of Mishlei, uh, from chapter 10 on, you have verses that are a contrast between uh, the wicked and the righteous, good and evil, the wise man and the fool, and so forth. So that caused me to question whether my analysis was correct. And that led me back to the first part of the verse, which says, a wicked man performs a deceitful act. And we talked about deceit has the quality of fooling someone to their detriment. But I made an assumption in there that I didn't really check clearly. And the assumption was that I assumed he was fooling someone else to their detriment. Who else besides someone else might the wicked man be deceiving? Any thoughts? If the wicked man is performing a deceitful act, who might he be deceiving? Okay, could be the righteous man, but the righteous man would be someone outside of himself. Okay, 
then that was our interpretation that I just went through, was someone else outside of himself. And David, you hit upon a very good point. He could be, and in fact is, fooling himself. This is interesting, the approach that Rashi takes. When a wicked man does something wicked, he is actually deceiving himself. Why? Because he thinks he's going to satisfy his emotions and gain satisfaction from his wicked deed. But does he really? I mean, we've seen through our studies in Mishle that he is just fooling himself and that his unrealistic emotional desires will never be satisfied. So his acts are deceitful acts, and the deception, in addition to potentially deceiving someone else, the deception is on himself, because he doesn't see what he's doing to himself. He's fooling himself into doing things that are actually destructive to his own life. And it, it, certainly his own internal peace, if not destructive also to his physical life. So if we take that approach, now we can see how the first half of the verse relates to the second half. The first half talks about the consequences of the wicked person's actions, and the second half talks about the consequences of the righteous person's actions. The wicked person's actions result in a deceit on himself, that he's fooling himself and creating difficulty for himself, whereas the righteous person's actions results in the true reward of knowing he's operating in accordance with the system that God created and living a much less stressful and more peaceful life than the wicked can live. Okay? Any questions on that verse? Okay, in that case, we'll stop there for the evening.